I want blonde hair when you edit. <laughs> yeah, that's what I need. There's going to be no video for this, but what? We can make it sound like you have blonde hair. There you go. I like that. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium in the School of Education at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we explore issues and ideas in public PK-12 education. We are continuing our series on digital equity today with a discussion about how students, teachers, and schools navigated the rapid transition to online learning during COVID-19. Uh, with me virtually are Steve Castle, Director of Curriculum and Instruction for Hanover County Public Schools, Grady Hart, Community Partnerships Coordinator for Richmond Public Schools, Nadia Hassan, Spanish Teacher and World Language Department Chair at Powhatan High School, Christina Aquilina, Innovative Learning Coach at Shady Grove Elementary School in Henrico County Public Schools, Damon Morris, Senior at Goochland High School, and Oscar Keys, Multimedia Teaching and Learning Librarian at VCU and Doctoral Student in Art Education. My name is David Naff. I am the Assistant Director of Research and Evaluation for Merck and the host of this podcast. Thank you all for joining me today. Uh, just to start off from everybody, what have the last couple of months been like for you? I'll jump in first and just say that um, I think change and constant moving targets has been sort of our world um, throughout the last couple of months. And, you know, all of us know about online learning and all of us have probably participated in, in some kind of way before, but um, now more than ever, we're relying upon technology and, um, you know, not knowing what's going to happen from this week to next or two or three weeks out and, and constantly having to move and shift and, and be flexible has been our world for a little bit here. Yeah, I think just to uh, kind of follow up on that, I really have two words that come to mind when thinking about the last couple of months. The first has really been, this is unprecedented. I mean, when you really step back and think about what we're doing here, we're, we've essentially taken a system that for literally centuries has relied on in-person interaction and flipped it on its head to function in a remote or minimal contact model. And um, you know, done that in a matter of a few, just a few days, no less, um, and certainly over the last several weeks. I think case in point for us, for Richmond Public Schools, uh, the immediate and the largest need that we saw right off the bat was for us to continue our school meals. We qualify all 25,000 of our students for free school breakfast and lunch. And for many of our students and families, they really rely on that resource to help make ends meet. And that need didn't go away because of the pandemic. And so for us, just to be able to go in the first weekend, get to a point where we had uh, more than 100 total volunteers and opened up 20 school-based distribution centers run by our nutrition staff and our engagement team, just a really incredible feat to accomplish in that first weekend. And at that point, to continue on and roll out uh, to kind of switch things over to a more mobile delivery strategy, where we're now operating 55 plus distribution sites, 45 of them being mobile and really meeting folks right in the community. Hmm. Um, we really recognize that as an early need 
because we know that now more than ever, it's important to meet families directly where they are. Mm -hmm. And uh, the result has been that at this point, we're actually continuing to serve upwards of 14,000 meals every single day to our families in addition to other items. So Mm -hmm. being able to leverage that same infrastructure to do things like uh, share our hotspots and Chromebooks with families who need them, uh, hygiene supplies, academic materials, and so much more. Um, the quick turnaround on that type of thing is really just incredible to have uh, to have been able to be a part of. I think that um, for me, it's been a struggle. I, I, that's <laughs> struggle bus. Like that's all I can say. Like, <laughs> you think of all like the memes you see, and I feel like I can relate to like almost all of them. It's funny because I was on another call a couple weeks ago and for for a different company and they talked about like where do you want to be during this whole COVID-19 situation and they talked about these different zones and I'm looking at it now and I can like actually see where I've been throughout the process so like the fear zone the learning zone and the growth zone so I think when everything started I was definitely in the fear zone like personally with a toddler my mom's a nurse he was like I want to go to grandma's house and it's well we can't go to grandma's house you know Mm. so definitely in that fear zone and then kind of having to sit down and like look through it like okay what can I learn from this like working through all that and then getting into that growth zone because I I definitely think it was a struggle at first which so the personal aspect of it definitely took over a little bit um and as someone who does not do well in an online I don't take (laughs) online classes because I I really do not do well in them so I'm trying to bring that empathy into into this situation because if I'm a teacher who's not thriving in this distant learning environment, what's it like for students? So I'm trying to have that kind of growth and empathy mindset, but it's definitely been one of those things where every day you find yourself cycling through fear, learning, growth. But I, I mean, it's it's not something like what what Grady said. It's it's unprecedented, and that's exactly what I told my students. They're like, "Well, what do we do?" And I'm like, "This is unprecedented. Like, this is uncharted <laughs> territory, and and really none of us." know have a good answer on what to do because we are all learning together in this process because I don't think anybody (laughs) has lived this experience before so we're just kind of living it and doing it together so I definitely think it's been it's been something (laughs) so (laughs) I I really don't have words other than that for it because it's just been kind of crazy and uncomfortable which is you know you want to be uncomfortable to learn but it's definitely Mm -hmm. been uncomfortable and several different ways so the other thing i want to add just uh it's sort of a weird phenomenon it's like you never leave work now you're you're, you're since your house is your workplace you never leave work yeah and, and it's so strange you know and uh with kids in the house that are also doing schoolwork so then i'll come downstairs and answer their questions about more schoolwork i'm like stop i don't want to work anymore today and it's now 9 30 at night i just want to you know watch tv or something but yeah. Um, so that's been a, a very interesting phenomenon. I need to walk or something just to get out of the house, which is the work and home now. Yeah. I heard somebody describe it as every day is Tuesday now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Pretty the Groundhog's accurate. Day. Yeah. It's, there's a lot of the Groundhog's Day thing going on. Yeah. Sure. Damon, how about you? How has this been for, as a senior in the class of 2020? To begin, uh, you know, most students weren't expecting us to uh, leave school for the rest of the school year. We were only expecting that two-week period. Uh, so when we, it came to fruition that we weren't going back, most students took it as the opportunity to, uh, oh, well, school's over kind of thing. So most of us were cooped up in the house watching TV, uh, playing video <laughs> games, and, you know, of course, finishing those school assignments that they had. Uh, 
it was stressful uh, for on the aspect that as an extra extrovert, you know, I thrive off of human communication uh, and human interaction. So that was very uh, painful in the aspect of I can't see my friends anymore. Uh, I can't express myself and, you know, those kind of ways that you would get in a normal uh, interaction or communication with someone. And uh, we had lots of assignments to do uh, as senior leaders to uh, get graduation going by asking people questions of how they want graduation, what do they want to do, do they still want a graduation. Uh, we were able to see each other a few times as we went to school to pick up graduation items. So that was great for me. Uh, I needed that relief. And hopefully in the coming weeks, I can get more of that as we start to open up. I could definitely relate as a fellow extrovert. This has been a challenge. Zoom doesn't <laughs> quite cut it. Christina, how about you? It has been a lot of Zoom calls. Also, <laughs> <laughs> Zoom is the new thing. I feel like I am constantly on video. I'm co I've constantly got someone next to me talking to me in my, you know, in my ear, tell, you know, telling me what they're doing, what's going on in their world. So it, I am an extrovert as well. And so that has been kind of a nice, a nice way to balance seeing people, seeing people, if you will. Um, but the thing that I think about most for this whole, even reflecting back now that it's been what, eight weeks mm. since our last time we were in our buildings, wow. um, at least for us, it's a, it's a odd shift of hurry up and let's do this. And we needed this done yesterday. And, you know, we had to have this finished versus hang on because we're not entirely sure what this is going to look like. So we need to wait, we need to plan, we need to look through all of these different steps. So it's just, it's a very odd push and pull of hurry up to wait. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's been the biggest. And, and just as someone said, I'm not sure, I don't remember who, but just the flexibility has been necessary. We've just needed to be able to be flexible and change on a dime and, and say, that was our plan, but that's not going to work. So now we need to think of a new plan. And, and it's, it, everyone has been great. Honestly, I will say mm -hmm. it, it's, it's been interesting to see how people step up in a crisis. And, you know, they say every, when everything's great, everyone is around and everyone's willing to be all in. And it's, it's really, you see people's true colors when, when things are tough and they really do step up and, and get the job done for our kids. Yeah. And there's nobody better at uh, being flexible and adaptive than teachers in the world, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Oscar, how about you? My first couple of months were just a lot of teaching people how to use Zoom via Zoom, which was a pretty <laughs> unique <laughs> uh, experience. Um, I was on the University Rapid Transition Task Force early on in our process. And a lot of those early conversations were just like, how do we possibly move people this quickly, students and instructors alike, figuring out technology needs and all kinds of things like that. Thankfully, my time on that task force rolled over, but you know, part of what my work was, was essentially building the tools for teachers um, and sort of really thinking about what are they going to need going forward. Um, and I found myself working on sort of a, a side project in the form of a a resource specifically for arts faculty here mm. that ended up getting shared with a lot of folks in K-12 as well. Um, but it was just some of the unique needs about what do you do suddenly when you don't have materials to work with. Um, and I think just seeing how arts teachers in particular and other resource teams adapted 
you know, my dad's a PE teacher and I've been editing his little videos together for his <laughs> students. And just like really thinking about what are those, I've been having a lot of reflection about what are those essential skills that students need right now, you know? If that art can bring them some comfort and if their bodies can move in place, you know, that's just as essential. Um, and, uh, and I think also just the fact that my summer research plans all got shifted because of COVID. And, and now I'm looking at specifically, how do we bring these seniors into the freshman class? Mm. Um, I'm looking at specifically for the School of the Arts this year, but um, the hope is some of that might be helpful as well. So I'm really looking forward to hearing what the conversation is here. Yeah, and it's good for us to be in the habit of sharing resources right now, yeah. for sure. Um, Steve, let's start with you. What has been the approach in your division to helping teachers and students adjust to online learning? And what are some of the challenges that you've encountered and strategies that you've found to be particularly effective? Well, I think the first thing is something I mentioned earlier. It's just the constant change. And I'll go back to a quick story. I was standing in front of all the division leaders on March the 12th. And on March the 11th, we had completely scrapped our professional development training. All of our professional learning plans were gone. So the next morning, I'm standing in front of everyone explaining what we're going to do. And this is at 8 o'clock in the morning. By 11 o'clock, that plan had changed. By 1 o'clock, it changed again. And by the end of the day, around 4, it was the, the, the last iteration of the day. And that was just a real, you know, a great indicator of where we were about to go. And um, so I think that's been the biggest challenge is just constantly moving, you know, and, and people that know me, I'm, the, I'm just like you, David, I'm the extrovert, extrovert guy and I can jump <laughs> in and fit in with what I need to and make it work and fly by the seat of my pants as needed. But, you know, in, in this kind of role, when you're in the division leadership, you've got to be able to plan and look forward months and months ahead. And that's the biggest challenge right now is teachers are saying, what is this going to look like? What is it going to feel like? Uh, what are we going to be doing? And and I can't answer the questions. I can mm. I can talk to you about Plan A, Plan B, <laughs> Plan C, and Plan D, but I don't have any idea which one's really going to come to fruition. So it's uh it's very challenging right now trying to work through that. Um, you know, and and I agree with um I think what Grady said earlier that we did an amazing job of turning the aircraft carrier very quickly. And really in education, it takes a long time to get something to, to really get done quickly. Uh, I mean, to, to have real lasting change and it doesn't happen quickly. And this time it did, we had no choice. And so, um, you know, that, that, that was a big deal for us. Um, the thing that we're really struggling with in our division is just an inconsistency of a learning environment. Hmm. We've got students that live in million dollar homes and yet they still don't have access to wireless because in Hanover, there's some rural areas that don't even have the infrastructure. You barely get a cell signal. Mm -hmm. um, and then we have students that are, that are in um, you know, much less um, affluent environments. And so how do we provide that same support for those students or, or get the students exactly what they need? That's been a really big challenge for us. Um, We've got some students who have siblings in the home that have one computer to share among the three of them, for example. We've got other students that all the students in the, the home have a computer individually to work with. Um, and we're not a one-to-one -one division, so we're still reliable, relying upon paper. We're relying upon uh, cell phone pictures of assignments when they're completed to be turned in. We're gonna take it however we can get it. We're looking at logistical processes about how to collect papers and bins or return books. And then how do we think about the future of giving things back out to students mm. and providing appropriate feedback. And so 
Um, the biggest thing we're really trying to work through now is just trying to figure out what those parts and pieces are going to look like as we move forward. Um, so hopefully if we can at least create some type of a foundation, a starting point where we know all students have X, mm -hmm. then we can move on with, with better efficiency with planning. And so those are some of the, the bigger challenges, but I think the lesson learned through all of this is that as a division and, and division leaders in their role, we cannot supply what the individual students need. We have to rely upon the teaching staff to really have those strong relationships with students and really know what they need individually and support them appropriately. Um, and so I think moving forward, our shift will be not that the division supplies all the learning and the lessons for the teachers to then implement. It'll be about a philosophy in, in providing resources for the teachers to use and pick and choose what's best for their students. Uh, Grady, what does this look like in, in RPS? I think for us, obviously, the we've we've got a lot of the same issues, and then we've got a lot of different issues as well, and so we take different approaches here. Mm. For us, I think we realized right from the get-go that uh, for many of our students and families, we really had to start with just ensuring that they had the basics. Mm -hmm. um, and so we put out a survey pretty early on, and... Uh, we had about 14,000 out of our approximately 25,000 students who reported a need for a laptop um, mm -hmm. in order to access uh, remote learning tools. Another 5,000 reported a need for a wireless hotspot in order to acquire reliable internet service. Mm -hmm. So at that point, you're talking about almost 20,000 devices for 25,000 students. You know, again, I think what really worked well for us is that in those very early days, we set up that distribution network and really were able to get, uh, you know, our food network and some of those supplies already set up to go out of those 55 plus, um, you know, school and mobile sites. Um, hmm. And so we were able to really leverage that same model and leverage that distribution network and uh, you know, partnered with some key you know key organizations, including uh, Parks and Recreation, has really been a, a great partner in this work with us, actually. And leveraging those networks, those partners, and uh, you know, literally at times more than 100, 150 volunteers a day, we have gotten to a point now where, as of this week, all of our high school, middle school, and elementary school students have had the opportunity to pick up a laptop and or a wireless hotspot if they reported that they needed one. Mm -hmm. And so at this point, uh, you know, we're going to work on preschool next week and then just continue to, you know, anyone who maybe missed, you know, hasn't been able to pick up a Chromebook or a um, hotspot yet, we're going to make sure that they still have an opportunity. But at this point, the majority of our students who reported that need do have that. And for us, that was a key first step because what we've done is, you know, in, in the early days, immediately we were able to kind of put out some academic packets, make sure students were getting access to books and those sorts of things. But what we really wanted to shift to was a something that could be done remotely and ideally online. And so uh, we developed what we call RPS at Home. That is our sort of online curriculum. And it's something that I think is unique to RPS, and you know, it, it is different from what uh, from what I heard Steve describe in uh, describe in Hanover. We've created essentially a self guided central platform that is RPS at home, mm -hmm. to which all of our students K through eight have access. 
And so essentially what we did was we almost crowdsourced from our teachers who were available and were able to provide content, um, you know, in the form of videos, uh, lesson plans, all of these kind of things. And we're able to kind of crowdsource that for everyone to have access to. And we made RPS at Home extremely kid-friendly as well. We know that not every student is going to have an adult at home to support them with this. Um, a lot of our parents and a lot of our families are uh, essential workers. And so they are out in the community and you know working every day. They may not be available to help their child. And so we literally set it up easily enough that a kid can go in, they pick their grade, they pick the day of the week or the date. Um, and everything from there is self-guided for uh, about two and a half to three hours of learning per day. And what this has really allowed us to do is focus on equity. Um, that, that is something that is so key in everything that we do. And so we know that some teachers aren't necessarily as able to teach as others, right? They may have their own kids at home or have other challenges that they're currently wor uh, worrying about and just may not have quite the time to be able to dedicate to this. And so. RPS at Home has enabled us to ensure that all students have access to learning resources. And then we've continued to support teachers and uh, encourage them to serve as a supplement to that learning because we know that nothing will replace, you know, having a teacher in front of a student. But this at least gives us a way of, you know, making sure that we're not putting all of the onus on our teachers. And then another way that we've really done that is just making sure that we have enlisted partners for online tutoring. And so that allows us also to have, you know, in addition to teachers, if students need that more individualized uh, attention, they also can request a tutor and really be able to, uh, you know, link them up directly with a professional tutor. So we've used a variety of different tactics here to make sure that all of our students have access to online learning tools. It's so interesting to hear the RPS perspective and the Hanover perspective kind of back to back about the digital divide and what that looks like in different contexts. We had a previous episode with Dr. Petrie Martin out of Petersburg and uh, Dr. Smart Goggins from the Alliance for like Excellent Education. And we talked about what it, the digital divide looks like in rural communities compared to urban communities. And for rural communities, like Steve was talking about, it's more of an issue of access. Like, how do you actually get the infrastructure out to these more remote areas? And in urban communities, it's more of an issue of affordability a lot of times. So hearing those back-to-back -back perspectives is really interesting. So that gives us some helpful background in terms of what the infrastructure looks like. I'm curious from the teaching perspective, Nadia, what was it like to rapidly transition to online learning and instruction? And what were some of the initial challenges that you encountered? I mean, I think to start, like I really didn't think it was gonna happen. So like, <laughs> like leading up to it, I just remember I could be like, we're not gonna be here. Like we're, we're done for, they're gonna send us home. I'm like, no, that's not, I think there was like a sense of denial. Cause I was like, that's not <laughs> what's gonna happen. That's not what's gonna happen. And then they called a faculty meeting and it was kind of like, okay, this is happening. And I was like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe this is happening. Like I was, slightly shocked um and you know i i wasn't too worried about what to do with kids because obviously as a language teacher like we we we're focusing on skills right and that's been my focus all year so we're we've already been focusing on essential skills so that's nothing different than what we've been doing but i just i think it was the shock and then everything someone said it before everything was just like this 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 like every time we got a new communication, something was changing. So I think for me and for students, from what I heard, there was some frustration about the 
consistently and constantly changing information. Like at first it was the two weeks, it will be graded when we come back, the workbook, you have to do it. Cause you're, and then it was like, and then a couple of days later it was like, well, it can't, we can't grade it. It's not graded work. They should mm -hmm. be doing it, but they don't have to, it's not graded. So then I had students emailing me and they're like, well, now that it's not great, I, I want to do it, but I'm not motivated. Can you help motivate me? And I'm like, <laughs> um, um, you know, obviously like you don't want to lose your skills. You need to, for when we do go back to the classroom and then, you know, now we're not back in the classroom. So we are like actively assigning and checking and reaching out to parents because well, your student isn't doing it and they need this to move on as it's past fail. So it's just everything's everything's like constantly changing. I think that's something that makes it so difficult is like what people are saying. You can't. It's hard to reach everybody in an equitable way. So you're you're assigning things to students who can do it online. You have to switch it up a little bit and differentiate for the students who need paper copies or for those who have a hotspot or for those who can't get a hotspot but don't have internet. So it's definitely been a lot of trial and error and just for languages we're just really focusing on you know those skills it's just that's been it's been a lot <laughs> yeah I, I i think with the class that i was teaching last semester I, I sent three announcements in three days about what our plan was moving forward because i mean it was like what steve was saying too everything transitioned or changed so rapidly so information that you had the morning of one day was different than the afternoon of yeah. one day um christina how about you what was this like for you it just a lot of the same sentiments. I mean, just trying to figure out a way that we can reach all of our students in such diverse needs. We have our Henrico Learner Profile, and one of our, our deeper learning pillars is anytime, anywhere. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we preach that we want any, we want learning for our students to really be anytime, anywhere. And we have all of these, you know, things that we've put in place that we can send home with our students when they're not with us in our buildings. And now we have that opportunity to utilize a lot of those tools and structures that we've put into place. Hmm. So I think our biggest goal in Edflix was to bridge the gap between school and home and just give our families tools to look around and say, hey, you know, one of our performance tasks this um, this episode was about earning and spending. Hmm. And so we invited the kids, it was um, the kindergarten and first grade and this uh, second and third grade task was to do household chores. So <laughs> make your bed, help with uh, cleaning dishes, you know, read to your little brother, do a choice board activity, all of those different things in order to earn pennies or dollars or whatever, you know, was, was shown on their menu. Hmm. And so to see that, you know, this is a skill that we're learning in the classroom. This is a skill that your teachers are reinforcing each week when they're meeting with you. Use that knowledge that you're gaining from them in order to apply it in your real life and see how that connects. Hmm. That's really been, I, I think, our biggest goal. And just, you know, we've really tried to, to say our content specialists have worked day and night, our, our four elementary I can only speak to elementary, but our, our four elementary content specialists have just worked day and night to make those connections and find those pockets where we can reach kids everywhere, regardless of where they are in the county, hmm. um, and, and provide the support for our teachers to be able to reinforce those concepts uh, that our kids are seeing on the choice boards and in the performance tasks. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to that end, Christina, what are some of the strategies that you've found to be particularly effective in engaging your students in Henrico? So I think the biggest and most engaging, and, and I think Steve said this, is using our teacher resources. Mm-hmm. They are who the kids want to see. They want to see their faces. They want to hear their voices. And so just continuing to build up our teachers and give them the tools and support to support their students. It's just, It's been so amazing to see the fruition of their labor in in building their communities. I mean, they've spent, they've spent, you know, almost, almost three, nine weeks being, trying to build up their communities and and building these relationships with their students. And now more than ever, it's just evident to see all, all that they've done and, and how much they are supporting their students and, and encouraging them to support each other you know, giving them the tools, we, we give them the tools to teach their students and they give their students the tools to encourage each other and to support each other. Hmm. So that's been amazing. Um, Nadia, Nadia, how about in Powhatan? What have you found to be particularly effective with your students? So that it's, it's interesting. It's, excuse me. It's interesting. You can edit that one out. Interesting to hear <laughs> the elementary perspective of it, just because the high school level, it's, it's, it's so different, especially in an area like Powhatan, where, you know, you have some students who are working because they need to help support their family because some of their, one of their parents lost their job. So a lot of students, it's hard to engage them. I, I've found, um, I teach Spanish one, I teach Spanish three. So Spanish three, for the most part, all the kids are doing it because if you think about it, this is a great way to get your language credit. You right, like just you just have to do the work at this point. Um, but Spanish one, um, I mean, I have a class of twenty eight and about five consistently turn it in each week, right? Mm-hmm. And it's this is something that like if you're not turning it in, you aren't going to move on to Spanish two, mm-hmm. even if you were you know doing well before. So it's tough for for me. Like I said, we've been focusing on essential skills. So we were, you know, originally I had each skill each week. So you do a listening or reading or writing and a speaking activity. And then it was kind of like students are super overwhelmed. It's too much work with all their classes. So, you know, cut back. So I'm like, okay, because I've been hearing great feedback from my students. They're like, this is great. This is exactly like what we do in class. I like this. Like this is, thank you for making it easy for us to do. Um, So now I've been focusing on like, you know, the two big skills when you're learning a language or when you're using a language are speaking and listening, right? Mm-hmm. If you're having a conversation, those are your two big skills. So I've been focusing on engaging students with speaking activities and listening activities. So speaking activities, I've been making it more relevant by having them talk about what's going on right now. Hmm. So Spanish one, it might be like, what do you like to do at home or something kind of basic about what's going on at home? What are you eating? What are you doing? Um, in Spanish three, you know, answering questions about like what do you miss like what's your opinion on do you think we'll go back to school next year so trying to make it more relevant because I I do think that students especially at the high school level have something to say about this Hmm. um so I'm trying to give them that outlet yes I know it's in Spanish so it's a little bit more difficult but um (laughs) I find that you can like really streamline what you want to say when you're doing it in another language so I'm trying to give them that outlet to express it. So when we were doing writing, they were writing about that as well. So I think that has been a little bit helpful with them because it's, it's relevant. So hopefully, but it's like I said, it's, it's so hard because you have those students who are having to work or the students whose parents are essential workers. So they're watching their younger siblings and trying to help their younger siblings. And they're, so 
it's just, it's kind of all over the place. Um, you know, it gives some thought into like how, if this were to happen next year, like how could we, you know, really engage students from the beginning. So, yeah. and it seems, I mean, it seems like the common theme is just to be adaptive and those, I mean, those are helpful strategies. And if uh, um, we have other profiles of innovative practice on our website, um, and if for those who are listening, if you know of any other educators who are innovating in this space, like um, Nadia and Christina are, feel free to send some suggestions our way and we'll be eager to share those on our website. Oscar, putting on your researcher hat, um, as a doc student, what does the researcher uh, tell us about, the, about meeting the needs of students during online learning? And then what are some of the unique considerations in the time of COVID? So um, the, one of the things I wanna make sure I mention, cause I've been in talking with lots of instructional designers and my friends who actually teach online education, mm. they've been really adamant that this is not online learning, <laughs> that mm. this is teaching during a time of crisis that's using these online tools. Um, and so, you know, I think the push to sort of talk about what are the best online learning practices, those are maybe like secondary tertiary questions really thinking about what is that baseline first. In terms of the research around what it means to teach during a time of crisis and where online tools might fit into that, you know, I know lots of folks have been talking about this being completely unprecedented, um, but it's not the first time that school's been disrupted by tragedy. It's not the first time that people have been dislocated or removed from their positions. Hmm. And a study that I've actually found super helpful in both moving my class online and sort of thinking about my research, um, it's this really, it was the first sort of post 9-11 study that was done. It was like a huge random sample survey, 2000 students, and they essentially asked what did students find the most helpful or the least helpful from teachers following that. Um, and actually just hearing y'all talk, um, you're actually doing all the things that they recommend in that study, which is mm. first off, just acknowledge what's happening. And that alone really does it. Students reported just wanting people to do something and to tell them it was okay that stuff felt weird. <laughs> and once you acknowledge that, then learning can happen because it sort of reduces some of the trauma response, right? You're not being mm -hmm. told, you're not creating this emotional dissonance in your, your educational space. And so for me as a teacher, a lot of my work has been with young people in personal crisis. Mm -hmm. And so it's been really interesting that some of those like care informed pedagogical decisions are the things that I found teachers just intuitively kind of leaning towards because you were relying more on that relationship. And folks in online education will tell you that community in a virtual classroom is actually usually the first thing you lay down. Um, there's this big perception that online learning or like these giant massive online courses <laughs> and you have these modules and you never see each other. Um, but actually some of the, the best practices for online learning are very community based and the difficulties of building that space virtually, but just focusing a lot more on facilitated discussion than live instruction and sort of balancing those needs. And it sounds like to me, like, for the folks who have adapted really well and their students are responding to it, that's what's happening. And so I'm actually really curious to see what happens in the research following this because it's the first time that we have an international case study of what to do when students are in crisis. And I think if we think about this as like, what did it mean to meet those essential needs and then also to teach those essential skills, it'll be really interesting. There have also been other studies looking at you know, uh, Katrina and what it looked like to teach after that and the realization that 
even in the case where they moved a bunch of students to early online resources or even remote teachers and folks going out to communities and teaching where folks had been displaced to, you know, it still took two to three years to really recover and you still see the impact of Katrina in those education systems. Hmm. And so I think that's one of the other things too, to just be thinking in terms of the long term, this is not something that we just come back to. There's going to be, you know, these gaps in ways that we aren't anticipating and some that we are. And I think focusing on digital equity is going to be really key in the ways that that affects different students. And also, you know, has there been discussion about creating a time of silence, you know, mm -hmm. when folks come back and different things like that. So even if that's happening online, um, it can still have a profound impact. So like I said, a lot of the research is sort of suggesting that while online learning best practices are helpful, <laughs> it's really about maintaining those community aspects because you can't, you can't learn if you don't care. <laughs> Yeah, that's so interesting. This comes up time and again in our conversations with folks from school divisions too about the importance of having a, a care orientation right now and how student mental health and faculty mental health are kind of the two primary things that we need to focus on um, before any kind of meaningful learning can really occur. And we have a related project that we're launching related to social emotional needs and mental health for students in the time of COVID. And it's exactly what you're talking about, Oscar. We're digging into the literature on this, and it's so hard to find things that are um, entirely relevant to this because this is so unprecedented. Um, so it's a lot of like responding to natural disasters and things like that. So I'll be curious to see how this continues to develop from a research side, but also just from a like in terms of what the priorities are in schools moving forward and right. for just starting with understanding mental health. Right. And I think it's one of those unique instances where like the human side has completely collided with the technology side of what happens in schools right. in a way that I don't think anyone anticipated. Um, and, you know, as someone who teaches technology in the arts, um, you know, I think part of my perspective on that was, well, obviously the first thing you do is make sure everyone's okay. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, for a lot of teachers, that was also super obvious. And I think some of the frustration with online tools and online spaces, like a lot of that came because that was like, that's not the most important thing right now. If we're talking about continuity of education, we're talking about a continuity of care and community in our classrooms. Mm -hmm. um, and I've just been really amazed at some of the unique uses of technology, um, especially with folks just, you know, having a spreadsheet of how they contacted each of the students in their class. And it was using potentially like eight different apps or different things to do that. Like I said, I think from the research side, uh, we have this really, to the extent that it is unprecedented uh, case study of how do we teach most effectively? Like what are the essential things about building a classroom and getting that content across? Yeah, I suspect that we'll learn a lot from this. Um, Daman, I'm really curious as a student, how did you experience this unexpected shift to online learning and what has it specifically been like to be a member of the class of 2020 in the time of COVID? Well, here in Goochland, uh, because every student received an Apple device for the one-to-one -one program, hmm. uh, the burden wasn't as stressful as other school districts have seen across the nation, but it was unexpected because no one, as uh, I think Christina mentioned, it was expecting that we would be leaving school. The teachers were telling us that we'd be back in two weeks you know, there's no need to worry about anything. Everything's going to be fine. Uh, but then we realized that that was not going to happen. When we came back after spring break to start uh, instruction on our computers and things like that, you would assume that since we've been doing the one-to-one -one for a couple years now, that everything will be flush and everything will be easy. 
um, but it isn't like that normal learning experience that you would see online. You know, it's more like, as Oscar mentioned, it's teaching in a time of crisis kind of thing. Uh, to provide equity for all students, teachers were told to have their assignments be able to be used across online system and then have it paper copies where students without access to internet can use it as well. Uh, students did have their uh, hotspots if they couldn't, if they didn't have accessible internet at home, but that can only do so much. So student teachers were, were told not to do too much teaching through their streaming services like Google Hangouts, things like that, because if some students can't tune into that, you're, uh, you know, you're giving other students an advantage over the other students that, who don't have the Wi-Fi like we would. Like I said, everything immediately halted when the governor announced that we would not be coming back to schools. Uh, so it felt like an early break for most people. And the hardest part for, for us students was the self-pacing and the self-scheduling for you know, assignments. We were used to having those deadlines and due dates for most assignments. But after a while, students did get used to it. You were able to see some teachers do reviews through Google Hangouts and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, so that eased it a little bit as we were like, okay, we're starting to see some classmates, some teachers, you know, they started to get back in the mood. It was hard to, after that month long period, to transition back to schoolwork because we all were like, oh, we're done. You know, it's summer, it's summer break. You know, that started early in the spring, but that was not the case. And for the seniors in the class 2020, uh, shout out to the seniors, uh, <laughs> especially Goochland. Uh, it was more of like, we just lost our prom. Hmm. We just lost gradu our traditional graduation kind of thing. And that's what, those are those moments that everyone talks about for life. They tell their children about later on in the future, but we just lost them. Hmm. And, but another focus on, of ours was, or the seniors uh, from graduating from high school was, will we be able to go back to college in the fall and be on campus in a learning environment and not having to go the first semester online or whatever? So hmm. that's been the difficulties for us, but we have seen light you know, down the road. <laughs> and I think we're the most prepped class to uh, challenge this issue. Yeah, I agree. It seems like there's so many sacrifices that the class of 2020 has had to make, but the level of resilience that's going to come out of this class, I think, is going to be pretty incredible. Um, and I'm curious, Damon, going back to what Nadia's point was earlier about like, how, do you, how do we keep students motivated right now? Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you have any insights about that question. They mentioned uh, the fact that keeping everything present you know, using the, uh, the learning tools and, and talking about what's going on in our lives today uh, to help us continue to stay learning and engage works because uh, all the students have many ideas or opinions on what we know, what, what's happening negatively, positively, whatever. You know, a few me and a few friends, uh, we would always talk every night about what should have been changed, what could be done differently. Uh, I feel that after this period is over, people should take into count uh, the students' opinions on how to better handle these issues, because hmm. if this might not be, if this may be to the new normal, or if we may see more uh, frequent uh, issues like this arise, I think having student input on to make this learning experience the best experience possible will be a great thing. Yeah, absolutely. We could always use more student input. Um, Grady, starting to wrap us up here, what have you learned through this process that will inform your work moving forward? Yeah, so I think a lot of things, right? One of the silver linings to this is that uh, it has really enabled us to have more direct touch points with a lot of our families hmm. um, outside of the traditional you know, way that we would uh, interact with folks. So, 
you know, having this infrastructure now set up that really allows us to reach more people in new ways remotely through RPS at home and through our, you know, online learning tools and remote learning tools, as well as through our distribution sites uh, that really, you know, are in many cases just right outside of the homes of many of our families. This direct interaction day to day has really enhanced our ability to connect with more families. Hmm. And I think that's something that we're going to really continue to build on. The other thing is, I mentioned earlier that like, you know, the first word that really came to mind when thinking about the last several months has been uh, just how unprecedented this is. The second word that comes to mind has really been inspiring. Hmm. Um, And I think Christina made a great point about this earlier. For Richmond Public Schools, I say inspiring because when we have most needed the Richmond community, they have stepped up big. Hmm. I mean, we have from teachers and families adapting to, you know, remote teaching and learning to family and community support to the tune of almost a million dollars in philanthropic contributions Hmm. um, to literally thousands of volunteers pouring out for support and just myriad other creative partnerships. We've really seen a galvanizing of community support for our schools and I don't think this is brand new. I mean, I, th- I think this is something that's really been building over the past couple of years as Superintendent Cameras has made transparency, open communication, and authentic family and community engagement hallmarks of everything that we do. In fact, that's exactly why uh, family and community engagement is one of the five key pillars of our strategic plan, Dreams for RPS. Mm-hmm. Um, but just a couple of points to like illustrate this and really drive home the impact that we've had as of last week, our volunteer numbers, we've had a total of over 3,400 volunteers for a total of more than 11,000 hours combined. And again, our total meals at this point, which is just one of the many things that we're distributing out of these distribution centers, we're up to almost 650,000 total meals served. All of that really made possible through community support, through volunteers. So Now more than ever, it seems like we have a massive and truly engaged support system. And we're already thinking proactively in how to keep that momentum going throughout and after the pandemic. From a teaching standpoint, I think, um, I'll just say, I I think Superintendent Camera said it best for us. Nothing is ever going to replace a teacher in the flesh, right? We know that. But RPS at home is our effort to support families and students while we're closed. And I think that we're going to continue to see this be a really useful tool and a useful mindset moving forward throughout and post-pandemic. Steve, how about in Hanover? How is this going to inform your work moving forward? So I think I'm like Grady, like, where do I start? There's about probably (laughs) 800 lessons learned. Um, (laughs) But I think a few of them kind of stand out. And one of them is kind of funny to me when I'll start with the telephone game. Everybody had to, you know, pass the message around the room in a circle as a kid growing up. And, um, you know, during a time like this, communication is incredibly important and making sure that the message is heard accurately. And also, uh, because it's changing so quickly, we have to all stay attuned to what the next message might be. And so um, one of the lessons learned is that we really need to centralize communication a little bit more than we might normally do. Um, And so I think where we see that happening is more frequent meetings. So someone mentioned earlier 
that they're constantly on virtual meetings. And I'm like, yep, me too. Uh, <laughs> living in that world with the rest of you, uh, you know, I used to meet once every two weeks with, with my teams. And now I'm meeting twice a week with my teams to really make sure that we're all on the same page, answering their little questions that are that sometimes turn into bigger issues. Um, and so really, we, again, that's another example of how we've turned that ship really quickly and are jumping in. I really have enjoyed that because now I'm seeing them and having more frequent conversations than I've ever had before. Um, you know, I'm not out there in the trenches watching them and, and doing observations like I might have done in the past, but I am having more face-to-face uh, -face conversations um, than, I've, than I've had in a lot in the past. Um, the other thing I think that's come out a lot in our conversation today is that the power of the relationships. And I, I mean, I don't need to build on that anymore other than to say one of the things that I'm really thinking a lot about is moving forward. We actually, you kind of look at some of these, these um, situations as the blessing and the curse, like, yeah, the curse of us having to go through this, but the blessing was that we had three, you know, solid quarters worth of time with our students before this happened. And so many of those relationships were very healthy and fully developed. So what I'm concerned about is how do we now enter into a school year where we may not even know who any of these students are, and yet we're supposed to start with an immediate relationship with them. So what does that look like? How do we become you know, acclimated to who they are and, and have them get acclimated to who we are and how we do and work and complete business and, and have learning take place? without having any prior relationship in, for a lot of our students. And so that I think is one of those big challenges we'll have to tackle as we start to head toward the fall. Mm. Um, and then this, the third thing is sort of a strategy that I think we're gonna be employing from the curriculum and instruction uh, lens, which is what we've really learned is that some of our lessons are more readily taught at home or virtually than others. Mm. And so we're now taking a deep dive into our standards. And as someone said earlier, really looking at what are those essential components, those key concepts and skills that we really know we need to have students capture as we work through each of those units and standards within our curriculum. And now we're gonna be pulling out some of those units and saying, let's hold on to these two here. We're gonna now save them. We're gonna adjust the pacing to pull them into the end of the school year possibly, but really just kind of put them on the shelf and have them ready to go. Because at any given point, we're, we're, we may have to say, let's stop. And now let's pull this one off the shelf because this one is something I can teach now at home um, more readily than others. Mm. Those, are, those are some of the things that we're thinking through right now. But I think um, one of the other big overarching questions that we all are going to have to tackle is how am I going to effectively assess students and really know what they have learned mm -hmm. um, you know, when they're at home? Uh, so that's really the big challenge. Nadia, how is this going to inform your teaching in Powhatan moving forward? Oh, that's such a big question. <laughs> My whole thing is like, you know, we talked about this, I think last night, I was like, how do we, how do you build relationships with a new group of students? Like how, like, that's the first thing I do. Like I don't start instruction. I don't start with a syllabus. Like I start with building that relationship with students and making sure that they're seeing me authentically. So, you know, we can build that relationship. So I'm like, how do you do that behind a computer? So I think that is like the first thing that I'm trying to just kind of figure out because right now it's, you know, I'll even, you know, reaching out to students who have said like, this is really hard for me. It's taking a toll on my mental health and you reach out and you don't always get a response with a phone call or, a, or an email. So you you know, it's, it's, it's sometimes hard to be engaging just because, you know, some people, some students don't have the means to. So 
kind of thinking like that, like, how am I going to build that relationship? And, you know, demand, if you have any input, because you are a student, I will take it. That's, I think, moving forward is how, you know, I, I assess students using self-assessment as a language, like, where do you feel like you are on the proficiency scale? Like, how do you feel like you did? What could you do? Mm-hmm. So I think maybe to get there for next year, it's going to be a, you know, something that I reach out to students and say like, Hey, what worked, what didn't work, what could be done differently? What would you have liked to do? Trying to figure out like what, what would the students want? So, you know, obviously I'm doing this based on what I think they need right now because we were thrown into this and, you know, I'm, I'm a classroom teacher. I'm not necessarily, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not equipped to do it online. So it's, it's definitely been a learning experience and something that, you know, definitely requires more practice but you know what as a student would you want you know obviously no work is probably not an option but you know what can we do to better serve you um and you know my sister's actually really great because she does a lot of like the check-ins and like she she really she's like we're kind of done with schoolwork we're just focusing on mental health and making sure students are really really and she's at the middle school really you know okay in this in this process so kind of like moving forward and not having been thrown at it with things constantly changing, having some time to really like sit down and figure out like, how do I combine all these things, the relationship, the mental health aspect, the content, like knowing that there's going to be gaps in learning, but is that really the big thing moving forward when we've been so isolated for so long? Like is the big thing going into the next school year going to be content and like focusing on those gaps or is it going to be focusing on, like the mental health and the relationships and how do we repair? Like, I know there's a ton of research coming out on trauma mm-hmm. in children of all ages. And, you know, my son is about to turn three, but even with him, we've seen how this has affected him. Um, so as a parent, you're kind of like, how, how do we, how do we do that with students? You know, as a teacher, that's, that's part of our job. So that's kind of moving forward how I think I'm going to approach it is this needs to be done first before we can really focus on those gaps. Hmm. We need to make sure students are really okay um, and, and good before we can kind of dive into the coursework. I think that's going to be, I think I just talked my way through how I'm going to start to build relationships. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you for that. Um, so, so yeah, I think moving forward, it's definitely going to be how do we combine all those things and what might be a virtual platform. Yeah. Oscar, how about you? I think actually just building off what Nadia said, which is, you know, I think for a long time, I'm always on the on the fence about like the framework of trauma-informed care only because sometimes it focuses a lot on the negative consequences of those experiences as opposed to resiliency and grit and these other things that those experiences also can bring with guidance. But that being said, you know, very often that gets used as this sort of exception, right? Like this is how you teach. And for these other students, you have to think about their adverse childhood experiences. And now we're in a moment where every (laughs) child in America has had an adverse child experience. And so, you know, for me, any online curriculum instruction, any plan has to consider that as its base, because that is the one unifying experience across. You're going to have variation along tech, you're going to have variation along broadband access, but every child had their school year disrupted. And the 
national, international community trauma that goes with that, I think is going to be really, really important to consider. And in terms of how that informs my work as both a researcher and a teacher of teachers, for things that I have always been thinking about is like, I have a care-informed pedagogy, but you don't have to. You know, I think really thinking about what, why do I think that is a useful framework and really trying to articulate that in ways that make sense for technology instruction, online education, and the arts and outside of it. Yeah, I think it's had a really profound impact on, you know, what are the most useful frameworks moving forward? I never thought I'd go back to like a 1980s care ethics, uh, (laughs) (laughs) you know, educational theory. But in a lot of ways, this idea that like I communicate and teach care through my teaching, Mm. that maybe that's the thing that we need to build those communities back into our classrooms. And then after that, we can learn whatever we need to. But that base is going to be really essential, I think, for that continuity of um, instruction. Right. I think just <clears throat> I think just echoing the same sentiments um, that have been said about, you know, we we don't know what this is going to look like. We don't know how to do. We don't know what our our kids need. We don't know what our teachers need. And I think just listening is going to be our biggest strength. Our biggest goal going forward and just having grace and compassion and understanding for each other. Um, it, I, I think more than anything, this has really taught us that people and relationships are really what it's about and everything mm-hmm. else just comes secondary. <laughs> Even, you know, I, I really have to give Dr. Cashwell a big shout out, honestly. And, <laughs> and I mean that really and truly I've reached out to her, um, for several different things and just she sent me a video in her office to share with our staff and and just that act in itself is really just summative of, of this whole thing is that it's about the people and it's about the relationships and I think you know just again echoing what everyone said about all, everything else will come secondary you know did you turn in that assignment did you show up for your zoom call is really secondary to how are you and what's mm. going on in your life and what can I do to support you? For my position um, at Shady Grove, I'm going to be listening to my teachers and taking direction from them. Mm. Um, you know, what do they need from me to support their instruction? To you know, they're they're constantly worrying about their students. So you know, it is my job to worry about their students, but it's also my job to worry about them and to make sure that they you know, have the tools that they need in order to be successful and in order to be well um, to show up for their students every day. So mm. listening and just having compassion and, and humanizing all of this, I think is going to be what, what will be our strongest suit going forward. Sure. Damon, bring us home. I enjoy everything that you all just said. I agree with it 100%. I think that the mental aspects of things will have to be focused on a lot more. Uh, which is why I see the class 2024 moving into uh, college, uh, taking up more psychology and therapist uh, positions and majors mm-hmm. uh, to account for this. Because I think that we have the, we know what students need. This experience has made students humbling uh, mm-hmm. to appreciate that in-class instruction uh, that they've received. And, you know, hopefully will receive in the future because I don't wish this on anyone. This is not uh, ideal. <laughs> and to start off with everything being unprecedented, we don't know how long we'll have to go into you know, this online learning environment before we can reach our schools again. Uh, a few students and I are working on mobile hotspot units that can hold roughly 20 to 30 people uh, to place strategically around our county where the, the bandwidth is low or well, to uh, help boost the signals for those students who don't have the access to Wi-Fi at home. 
Uh, it's being funded by community partners, uh, our education foundation and our public school system. Uh, because the last thing that we want before we leave Goochland is to make sure our community is great. We don't want any of our students to having to suffer what we had to go through uh, at the end of our year, beginning their next years. As much as we want to say that this thing will be over soon, it's already done its damage that will be irreparable and have to take time to repair for mm. the, right, the classes coming after us kind of thing. And hopefully, sooner or later, the equity gaps will be closed when it comes to internet access and online learning. Uh, so that if in case we have to transition like this rapidly again, it would be an easier transition because everyone's like, we've done this before. We will do this right this time. You know, we have the experience and hopefully every student has no issues, you know, years down the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe two big things that are coming out of this is that relationships are the foundation of public education and that internet is a right at this point. This is something that everybody needs equitable access to reliable high-speed internet and devices for them to be able to learn. Um, and we're going to need to leave that there for now. But if you would like to stay up to date with our research resources and profiles of best practices in the time of COVID, you can check out the Merck website at merck.soe.vcu.edu slash projects. That's merc.soe.vcu.edu slash projects. Our goal is to make this a website a clearinghouse of relevant information as we navigate our new reality together. And your contributions are critical to that effort. So please share your recommendations for resources, as well as educators who you know are, are innovating in distance learning. Thanks as always to the VCU School of Education for supporting the work we do at Merck and to all of our member school divisions, Chesterfield, Goochland, Hanover, Henrico, Petersburg, Powhatan, and Richmond Public Schools. My thanks to Steve Castle, Brady Hart, Nadia Hassan, Christina Aquilina, Damon Morris and Oscar Keys for joining me today to discuss what they have learned from the rapid transition to online learning during COVID-19. Finally, thanks to you at home for listening. We hope that you and all who are important to you are well. This has been another episode of Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium in the School of Education at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we explore issues and ideas in public PK-12 education. Let's talk again soon.